Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theatre. This is a podcast about finding the humanity behind the horror. And this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Waxwork Woman, Part One. The Florida city of Key West, the southernmost part of the continental United States, has been described by many as a paradise. Writers Ernest Hemingway and Tennessee Williams famously made their homes there during their most productive periods of artistry and Key West also served as the location for the Winter White House of President Harry S. Truman, who spent a total of 175 days living on the beautiful island during his time in office. Only four miles long and one mile wide, Key West is closer to Havana, Cuba, than it is to Miami, Florida. Originally, the island was home to the Calusa and the Tequesta native tribes. When Spain claimed the island as their own, they called it Queo Hueso, the Island of Bones. This was because when they first arrived there, They found the island covered with the sun-bleached skeletons of previous native inhabitants who had used the island as a graveyard for their dead. Queo Hueso was eventually twisted into the current name for this sunny paradise, Key West. With all the beauty that Key West offers, there is also a darker side. And one of the darkest tales is still spoken of in whispers on ghost tours of the town to this day. The strange story of Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos Mesa and a man named Carl Tanzler, also known as Count Carl von Kossel. It is a tale that is often told incorrectly. If you search on the internet for these names, you will find a surface version of the story. A book called Undying Love by Key West resident Ben Harrison tells the facts of this horrific tale, and it is my primary source for this episode. If you want to learn more after hearing this story, I cannot recommend that book highly enough. I must say, this is one of the few times in my life when I have researched a tale and found the historical truth to be immeasurably more disturbing than what I had previously known. It is a story I find extremely difficult to write and tell, but one I feel is deeply necessary. There are things in these episodes to come that may haunt your memory. It is not a pretty picture, but it is true. These next episodes of Going Dark Theatre are dedicated to the sacred memory 
of Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos Mesa. May she finally rest in peace. Francisco Hoyos, nicknamed Pancho, was married to Aurora Milagro. They originally lived in Cuba, but when the family started struggling financially, they moved to Key West, Florida. Once settled there, Francisco got a job working in a cigar factory, and he and his wife Aurora had three daughters. Their first child was born in 1906. They named her Florinda, but as she grew up, she was most often called Nana. On July 31, 1909, their second daughter, Maria Elena, came into the world, followed by little Celia in 1913. They were a loving and close-knit Cuban family, and by all accounts, Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos was regarded as extremely beautiful. Elena was a teenager during the Roaring Twenties, and several photographs still exist of her in the flapper look of the period, always putting a red rose behind her left ear when she went out dancing at the Cuban club, which she loved to do. Even though nearly everyone in the neighborhood was relatively poor, it seems to have never stopped Elena from having fun. A friend of hers, Juliette Delgado, remembered Elena as being, quote, full of life, and described how she and Elena became very resourceful during their teen years. We were so poor back then that we had to make mascara from Vaseline and the charcoal of burnt matches. Dampened red crepe paper was rubbed on our cheeks for rouge, and red cake coloring was the closest we had for lipstick. With her curly black hair and her red rose, Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos was so strikingly beautiful that it was apparently common for tourists to stop her in the street so they could take a photograph of her. She was also an accomplished singer with a beautiful voice. On February 18, 1926, when she was 17 years old, Elena married her sweetheart, a man named Luis Mesa. In their wedding photograph, Luis holds Elena around her waist, his mouth an excited grin. Elena leans into her new husband's embrace, holding a beautiful bouquet of flowers adorned with long flowing ribbons. She wears a finely detailed knee-length white wedding dress and has a white lace crown on the top of her head. Her hair, fashioned in long ringlets, a satisfied smile on her face. The new bride, Maria Elena Malagro de Hoyos Mesa, looks like a queen. She is nothing less than radiant, her whole life ahead of her. By all accounts, Elena and Luis were extremely happy in their marriage. 
And it was only a few months after the wedding when Elena became pregnant with their first child. These were joyful days in the De Hoyos and Mesa families, and for Elena and Luis, the future probably never seemed brighter than it was during this time. However, on November 5th, 1926. Tragedy struck. Elena suffered a miscarriage, and both she and Luis were heartbroken over the loss. Luckily, they had their extended families to turn to for solace. Everyone wanted to help this couple through their period of grieving. And after all, they were still so young. There was plenty of time to try again. As the next few years passed, it seemed as though Elena was unable to move past the sorrow of her miscarriage. She began losing weight and felt tired all the time. Then, she started coughing. During this period in Key West history, tuberculosis was the number one cause of death. There was no cure. To be diagnosed was to know you would never recover. So, on April 22, 1930, Elena and her husband Luis took the trolley to the Marine Hospital. Luis remained in the waiting room while Elena had a blood test and an x-ray to determine if she had the fatal disease. Not long after this day, Luis Mesa left Elena and moved to Tampa, Florida, and then to Miami, Florida, where he fell in love with another woman. Elena never saw him again, but they never officially divorced. The day of Elena's first appointment at the Marine Hospital April 22, 1930, marked the time when her destiny was changed by another. For the technician who took her blood sample and x-rayed her lungs was a man named Carl Tanzler. When this tale is usually told, most often it is from the point of view of Carl Tanzler, the reason being that he wrote his autobiography, whereas Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos Mesa did not. I will quote from it extensively. But it is important to remember that, especially in regard to his early life and accomplishments, much of it is of dubious fact, if not an outright lie. A reporter named Ms. Bellamy interviewed Carl Tanzler later in his life, and as we go through his biography, it is important to remember the words that she wrote how much of his tale is fact, how much fantasy, this writer has no way of knowing. And so it remains today. However, I will specify when we know for sure Car Carl Tanzler was lying, and he lied a lot. It is factually known that he was born Georg Karl, with a K, 
Tanzler on February 8, 1877, in Dresden, Germany. Later in life, he preferred to be known as Count Karl, with a C, Tanzler von Kassel, evidently of noble blood. This was not true. But so many people in Key West believed it to be true, because he carried himself like an aristocrat, always smartly dressed with an upright posture, walking about town with a cane not because he needed it, but because it looked good. He was regarded as a harmless, eccentric, a character in a community that was filled with such people. Key West was a small town where people almost never questioned a person's past. In the nationwide press coverage that would eventually come, he is almost always referred to as Count Karl von Kossel. I will always refer to him as Karl Tanzler, since that was his true name and identity. In his memoirs, Karl Tanzler says of his early life, I was born in Dresden, Germany, in the townhouse of our family called the Castle. But there was another castle, the Villa Kosel, out in the country, and it was there I grew up. The manor had the reputation of being a haunted house, and the white woman, whom my mother told me had appeared from time to time during the past two centuries, was supposed to be my ancestor, the Countess Anna von Kossel, who died in 1765. Hers is quite a romantic history, and the beginning of my relationship with Elena. By the time I went to college, I had established in the green room of the manor a fairly big laboratory for high-voltage electricity. I had no interest outside science, music, and paintings. Girls did not exist for me, even as I went to university at Leipzig, and I did neither smoke nor drink. Time seemed too precious to me for such pursuits of momentary happiness. Engrossed in science after science, I took, at the age of twenty-four, Final degrees as Master of Arts in Medicine, in Philosophy, Mathematics, Chemistry, etc., having passed nine different examinations. I will pause here. Carl Tanzler never received any doctorate from any university, let alone nine of them. He was never a doctor, although he persuaded many people that he was. However, he did indeed possess some knowledge of science, medicine, and invention. When and how he came by that knowledge remains unclear, but he was never a real doctor with nine educational degrees it's best, I think, to think of him as an amateur Victor Frankenstein. An apt comparison, as you will see. Carl Tanzler's memoirs continue with a slide into the supernatural. For two nights, Carl witnessed poltergeist activity in his castle laboratory, with chairs dancing by themselves and valuable pieces of scientific equipment being destroyed by invisible hands. He continues, In the third night, however, I was mysteriously awakened around 2 a.m. I hardly believed my eyes. There were, standing by my bed, 
two women, one bending over my face, a tall lady with snow-white hair, a striking resemblance to the portress of Countess Anna, which I remembered so well. The second figure kept somewhat behind her, as if trying to hide, and the countess held the reluctant younger lady by the hand, bending still lower and staring at me. The countess Anne addressed me as follows. I've been trying to get your attention for quite some time, my boy, but you wouldn't take note. You were too much engrossed in your experiments. That's why I had to use some violence. Look here, Carl. I have brought you the bride, whom some day you will meet. I tried to answer something, but I could not speak. I had plenty of words, but I could not open my jaws. The countess now stepped a little aside, and at the same time she drove her companion nearer to me. For a very brief moment, the veil parted from the shrouded figure's face. Spellbound, I saw, framed in long, dark, black tresses, a young girl's face, so beautiful. I can't attempt to describe it. For a fleeting second, I saw the girl smile at me. A wonderful smile. But at that moment, the apparition quite suddenly disappeared. This was then the manner in which most people would call the supernatural entered my life. I did not know at the time that this experience was to be formative for the whole rest of my life. After this, it seems that Carl Tanzler lived for a time in Australia, continuing his scientific pursuits. This period of his life seems to have been corroborated by an anonymous friend who was with him, and he said, quote, Many years ago, Carl von Kossel traveled from India to Australia with the intention of proceeding to the South Seas Islands. He paused in Australia to collect equipment and suitable boats, and to become acquainted with prevailing weather and sea conditions. However, he became interested in engineering and electrical work there, bought property, boats, an organ, an island in the Pacific, so that he was still in Australia at the end of ten years. He had just begun to build a trans-ocean flyer when the war broke out and the British military authorities placed him in a concentration camp for safekeeping, along with many officers, India and China, who were prisoners of war. Later, he was removed to Trial Bay to a castle-like prison on the cliffs, and then the work in this narrative was accomplished. At the end of the war, no prisoner was permitted to return to his former residence, but all were shipped to the prisoner's exchange in Holland. When Carl von Kossel was released, he set out to find his mother, from whom he had not heard since the beginning of the war. Finding her safe, he remained with her for three years, witnessing the chaos that followed in the wake of the war. Finally, she suggested that her son return to his sister in the United States. There is also evidence to suggest that at some point during this time, Karl Tanzler may have been a soldier in the German army during World War One.
Numerous witnesses in Key West, Florida, observed that Tonsler received a check at the post office from the German government every month, the reason for which he never divulged. Two pieces of this testimony, Tonsler's pipe organ and his rudimentary, unflyable airplane, would figure prominently in the years to come. In 1920, after the Great War was over, Karl Tonsler returned to Germany and married a woman named Doris Schaefer. Together, they had two children, Aisha, born in 1922, and Clarista, born in 1924. Karl Tonsler emigrated to Cuba on February 6, 1926, one week before Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos married Luis Mesa. Then he went to Zephyr Hills, Florida, where his wife Doris and their two daughters joined him several months later. By 1927, Carl Tonsler, for reasons never accurately specified, abandoned his wife Doris and his young daughters Aisha and Clarista. He moved to Key West, Florida, got a job as a medical technician at the Marine Hospital, and pretended his wife and two children had never existed. When his wife Doris wrote him pleading letters for support, he ignored them completely. On April 22nd, 1930, Maria Elena Malagro de Hoyos Mesa came to the Marine Hospital to be tested for tuberculosis, and Carl Tonsler was the man who tested her. Carl Tonsler writes of his initial encounter with Elena. In the middle of my routine work, I received a call from the head office to go and take a blood test from a young senorita who had come for examination. I hardly looked at the patient as I entered the room. The first thing I noticed of her personality as I bent down to take a drop of blood from one of her fingertips rather than one of her ears, which were too exquisitely lovely to mar, was that her hand was unusually small, its long tapering fingers the loveliest I had ever seen. As the needle stuck, the hand twitched a little, and it was then from my kneeling position I raised my head for the first time to say, I'm very sorry to have caused you pain. Forgive me, please. I was so thunderstruck, I hardly heard her saying, It didn't hurt much. Forgive my nervousness. Her voice was sweet and childlike. It reminded me of a mockingbird's song in spring. Not knowing whether I was walking or dreaming, yes, it was she whom at last I found in the flesh. And for proof, I held in my hand the little glass tube with her red blood. I saw her the very next day, when she came in for more tests, and this time I took a radiograph of her lungs. 
which brought me the painful revelation that she was suffering from tuberculosis. Our hospital was not adequately equipped for the treatment of lung tuberculosis, yet some way had to be found to help her, a fierce determination to aid her, to bring her back to health was burning in my soul. Both Elena and her mother could not fail to notice my deepest interest in her case. They invited me to the family home, and needless to say, I went there that very evening. Carl Tanzler became obsessed with saving the life of Elena who he believed to be the bride he was shown in a supernatural vision so many years ago. Another obsession of his was building his own airplane in the back of the marine hospital where he worked. According to his memoirs, Tanzler showed the plane to Elena and told her that they would fly to an island in the South Seas together when she was well again. He named the plane La Contessa Elena von Kossel, as if it were already predetermined that she would become his wife. Tansler's narrative continues. Her 21st birthday approached. I had high hopes now that she would accept me as her suitor, as she had allowed me to buy the ring. I brought it over that day, hidden in a bouquet of roses. I also brought cakes and wine, and we had a wonderful day together. I said, Elena, I can give you so much more than someone your age. I can give you my science, my experience, my capacity to save your life, all of this and more, I will give you my undying love. What Elena really thought of all this, we cannot know. Did she really have any romantic feelings for Carl Tonsler? Was it all in his mind? Or was she putting up with his advances because he was the only person who said over and over that he could save her life, that she would not have to die a painful death from tuberculosis? Tonsler showered Elena with expensive gifts, a radio, a pearl necklace, a crystal pendant, all this while he refused to send his wife and his two little children a single penny. And he also was ignoring the fact that Elena was still legally married to Luis Mesa. Carl Tanzler wrote in a letter to Elena. I am working on our airplane in my spare time. It is now nearly completed, and the next time you come, I will give you the key for the cabin and we shall officially christen it. And then, too, I am already collecting all the things we are going to need on our wedding trip. Silk dresses for you. And all your trousseau 
even lingerie and silver slippers. This letter seems to have been the last straw for Elena and her family. Elena stopped attending her appointments at the hospital, and when Carl Tonsler went in the Oyos family home, he discovered that they were gone. They had quietly moved elsewhere in Key West, and none of the neighbors would tell them where they had gone. Tonsler writes in his autobiography, I buried myself in work as best I could, automaton-like. Night after night, I wandered through the town, peering secretly through the curtains of those innumerable little homes of the poorer sections, always hoping to find her, and in vain. Her silence was wearing me down. This is the language of a stalker, who in modern times should have received a restraining order. But then, according to Carl Tanzler, one night, an elderly Spanish lady beckoned to me from the porch of her house, and coming near, I recognized in her a woman I had seen with Elena's family. Your girl is very, very sick, she told me in a whisper. The family has moved. Elena is in bed now all the time. She needs you, but her parents won't let you come. I'll tell you what, doctor, it's a crime. Don't you pay any attention to the old folks. You just walk in and if you are still able to help, help her. I'll show you the house where she lives. In his memoirs describing what happened next, Tonsler casts himself as a swashbuckling hero from a medieval romance, rescuing a helpless damsel in distress. If anybody had tried to stop me, I think I would have used violence. Right in the hallway, I saw her sweet little face, Looking straight into my eyes from a chair in the kitchen corner, I cried, Elena, please let me come in. Yes, doctor, do come. I'm so glad you're here. Good evening, good evening, mother. I am so happy I found my Elena again. Tell me, what doctor is attending to her now? Angrily, her mother burst out, I am her doctor now. I laughed a little bitterly. You are some doctor, mother. I am sure you are a good nurse, but not a doctor. <laughs> I have come to stay. From now on, you might as well consider me in charge for good. I left them standing, open-mouthed, and turned to my bride. Please, darling, tell me whatever you wish or need at this moment and I will go and bring it to you. Elena replied, I don't need anything. I think it is important to note that even in Carl Tanzler's questionable testimony, he records that response from Elena. 
I don't need anything from you. But still, Carl Tanzler was the only person promising that Elena could survive. Perhaps that is why she and her family allowed this man back into their lives. Hope is a powerful thing. Elena's illness was growing worse, however, but Carl Tanzler was doing his best to make her comfortable, as he writes, The following afternoon, the furniture company delivered the bed. The best and biggest bed I had been able to find. Soon afterwards, there came another van with the largest mosquito top I had ordered and sheets of silk cushions in pink and blue. Well, my darling was as happy as a princess in her new big bed. Don't forget I want to marry you, darling, I said. Carl Tanzler began giving Elena treatments which consisted of a primitive form of electroshock therapy, a callback to his boyhood days of scientific experiments. More than once, he records her saying, Oh, Carl, stop, it burns, it burns. These treatments did nothing to help her illness. But... After one of these so-called medical treatments, Carl Tanzler writes in his memoirs that Elena said the following words to him, If I must die, all I can leave you is my body, for I am only a sick girl, so I can't marry you while I am sick. But you will take care of my body after I am dead, won't you? We have only his word that Elena actually said this. But he replied, I promised I would, and it was the most sacred promise which I ever made in life. I kissed her then, and laid her cushions. This was what I considered as our marriage vow. This, even though Carl Tanzler was still legally married to his wife Doris Schaefer, with two children, he refused to support and that Elena was a devout Catholic, still legally married to Louise Mesa. Did Maria Elena de Oyos really say these words to Cartonsler? We cannot know for sure. But I doubt it. Elena loved to sing, and one of her favorite songs to sing was La Pola Negra, the Black Wedding. It begins with these words translated into English. Let me tell you all a story I was told by an undertaker of the region. A young man's lover died before their wedding Without her love, he simply could not reason. These are the events of Sunday, October 25th, 1931, as reported by Carl Tonsler. 
I had just finished my records after the day's work in the hospital, and was about to put on my black coat, which I always wore for my Sunday visit with my bright Elena, when the brakes on a car screeched in front of the laboratory door. Mario, husband of Elena's sister Nana, rushed in and told me breathlessly, Elena has just died. Come with me. Elena's jaws had dropped, but her eyes were bright and clear. They had a faraway look, and as I gazed into those beloved eyes, they seemed to become deeper and deeper like wells, which with magnetic power drew me in. I could not tear my eyes away from her. I could look forever. The strange part of it was that with my brain, I fully realized Elena was dead. But my heart, with a greater force, told me she is not dead. It was probably because I listened to the voice of my heart much more than to that of my brain that the brain was able to keep functioning in a reasonable manner. There was a surprisingly large number of mourners. Masses of flowers formed almost a solid wall around my Elena's house. There was nobody in Elena's room. I took a seat near the coffin so I could drink in all her beauty for a last time. Beneath the closed lids, her eyeballs seemed to have concentrated, and they were looking straight into my eyes. I could feel their stare like a hypnotic touch. At the very last moment, when the coffin was about to be closed and everybody was out of the room, I kissed her goodbye on the temple, which was the one place that had remained uncontaminated by others' kisses. Mad as this must appear to most people, this funeral procession was like a wedding march. It was only then when I cried, and I cried from happiness. For now, the long, sad, worldly struggle was all over. My bride was beyond malice, beyond unhappiness, beyond her pain. She was in the hands of God, the best, the gentlest hands that be. This then was what, what many, perhaps most people, would call the end. But a strange new kind of life now began for me. It was something like a rebirth after these last two oppressing and depressing years. Now, at least, Nobody could take my Elena away from me, although I could see her no longer. I felt her presence all the time.
It was only natural that I went daily to the cemetery. Next time we meet on Going Dark Theater, we will continue with The Tale of the Waxwork Woman, Part 2. If you'd like to help support the creepy work I do, I have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens where I post the text of the Going Dark podcast episodes, chapters from my first book, Haunted History of Delaware, and audio recordings of my horror stories. If you do wish to subscribe to my Patreon, you can do so for as little as $1 a month if the spirit moves you. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater, where we seek to find the humanity behind the horror. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now...